Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Henry, yeah, we is at the meeting now, boy, and he's getting ready to call on me for that speech. There's a lot of brothers here tonight, too, and I remember the subject of your speech is thrift. I know it, Henry. That's T-H-R-I-F-T, ain't it? That's right. That's right. Now, don't you forget, Henry, this here book that I done bought on speeches has got all the stuff in it, and you sit here and hold it in your lap, and if I get stuck, you help me out. We can work that all right. If you get stuck, you look at me, I'll tell you what to do. Let me glance at that book here a minute, Henry. You ain't got much time now. The brother's going to call on you any minute. That's all right, though. That's all right. Look here, Henry. Here's one that says, uh, what do it say here? I'm so nervous I can't even read. It says here, when making an impromptu talk, the speaker may feel free to discuss the financial conditions, the crop situation, or politics, but utmost care should be given to latter. Henry, I'm getting nervous and nervous here. All you got to remember is now how you're going to start the speech. Remember, unaccustomed as I is to make a speech. Let me look at that book a minute, Henry. Look here. Here's a speech that starts out, ladies and gentlemen. That ain't the speech. That ain't the one. Henry, don't you forget to hold that book open now, and if I get stuck, you help me out. I'll do that, all right. Look out now. The brother's going to call on you. Now, wait a minute. Brothers, we have with us tonight one of our new members of the Jewels of the Crown who has proven himself a worthy rhinestone. This brother I refer to is a native of Birmingham, Alabama, and at this time I was going to call on Brother Sam Smith for a few words. There you go now, there you go. Hold that book now, Henry, here I go. Ladies and gentlemen. Uh-oh. Over, over, over. A custard, a custard. A custard as I used to making speeches, I want to say a few words to the good brothers here tonight. When I was a little boy, how is that, Henry? Keep on, keep on, don't turn around. A custard as I used to making speeches. You is crazy. A custard as I used to making speeches, you is crazy. Uh-oh. Over, over, over. Talk about finances. Brother, I was going to talk about finances, what they use and why we have them. You take the finances of today and you take the finances of the past hundred years and when you take them both, you will got them. That's enough. Don't say no more about finances. Start on politics. Speaking of politics, brothers, I refer back to the war of the evolution when that great statesman, oh, 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 that great statesman, oh, oh, what is it, Henry? What are you talking about? That great statesman, oh, oh, I can't think of his name right now, but I'll have it at the next meeting. Now, brothers, comes the most important thing. Thrift, thrift. Thrift, that's it, brother, thrift. T-H-R-I-F-T, thrift. And I want you, brothers, to take a vote on it. On what? On what? What else, Henry? That's enough. That's enough. Wait a minute, but before I finish this here speech, I want to say one thing. Over, over. Start over. Uh, cussed as I used to making speeches. What else, Henry? I done lost the place. I done lost the place. Just a minute now, just a minute. Just a minute, brother, just a minute. Shut up, don't tell him everything. Shut up, don't tell him everything. Wait a minute, y'all. But in order that you brothers know what I was talking about, I want to say, over, over. Uh, what else, Henry? Here, you take the book. Yeah, brothers, you take the book. Thank him and sit down. That's all, brother. Thank you very much. Mm. How was that, Henry? That's great. That'll take ten years for the brothers to figure out what you has been talking about. And that was, unfortunately, the precursor to Amos and Andy. That was Sam and Henry. That was a show that was started first in Chicago by Charles Carell and Freeman Gosden that were known more for Amos and Andy, but this was the original show they did. And 
why I did this. And by the way, my name is Greg Rashid. If you're new to the program, this is the Root and Roots Show. We come on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time live. And sometimes we do shows in the middle of the week and all, but we're having a special show tonight as far as we're going to be talking about the pioneers of radio that are African Americans. And I'm going to be I'm honored to talk to someone who I've had this book for a number of years. And I've been wanting to talk to him. Finally, we got our schedules together. And I have on the line right now the author of the book, Encyclopedia of Black Radio in the United States, 1921-1955. And I thought it was appropriate, since some of you will be listening to this. If you're listening live, you're listening during Black History Month. But as you know, on my show, it's always Black History Week, every you know, day on my show. But for some of you listening live, I thought it would be appropriate to get into, like, the roots of African Americans on radio, the dawn of radio, and all. I'm honored to have on the line Ryan. I hope I'm saying your last name right. Up, uh, Elliot, who's the author of the book again, Encyclopedia of Black Radio in the United States, 1921, 1955. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for being on here. And Ryan also he has a um, online publication called the Old Radio Times and. I'm, you know, people who've listened to my show for a number of years know that I love talking about old time radio, and I've, like I said, I've been wanting to have you on the program for a number, you know, since I've had this book for almost three years now, and I'm just happy to have you on. And I plan, I guess you heard that beginning piece, you know, by uh, Gosden and Freeman about um, Sam and Henry, and for many people, for many folks, unfortunately, during that era, and that was 1927. Yes. You know, and those were, you know, white actors trying to be African-Americans and using di- what they thought was dialect. But for many folks, that was the only time, and once Amos and Andy came on, and some other shows, the only time that they actually heard what they thought were black actors doing, you know, talking about African-American life. But there were so many other actors on radio were African-Americans that were doing things, and that's why I wanted to have you on to talk about that. And let's just start off by what, you know, talk about a couple of the pioneers of that era in particular. There's one guy that really fascinates me, uh, Jack Cooper, if you could talk about him. Sure. Um, Yeah, and he was one of the – he was a guy out of – well, he – spent most of his radio career. I was just refreshing my memory here. He was a Chicago guy. I think he might have started in D.C. Um, but there in the, the late 20s, he had a show, uh, the All All Negro Hour, I believe was his. Some of these titles kind of start to, to sound the same. Uh, and, and a lot of the African-American shows of the time um, used, you know, Negro in their title. So, of course, an era when that was... Uh, Still uh, okay, uh, but he had—I don't want to call it a radio empire—but for a, a black man in the early '30s and really into even the mid '30s, one statistics I happened to see in my book uh, that I had forgotten was that he controlled one sixth of the Chicago stations. I believe it was WGBS. I'd, he controlled one sixth of their airtime, either creating the content himself or um, selling, you know, selling the content to advertisers and such. 
uh, this one guy, and that was just uh, just astounding to me. Um, and of course, earlier on, he he did write and put together the All Negro Hour. I think if he was more successful, he could kind of farm out the actual uh, writing and that kind of stuff to some others and do the selling and kind of take his portion. Uh, but he is uh, certainly a big name uh, and one of the more well-known uh, figures uh, included in this book. Yeah, you know, but unknown by a lot of people, because I know a lot of folks yes, yes. have never heard of him, and I know my listeners who are listening live and those who are listening, sure. you know, on a delayed basis have probably not heard of him. And you can say also that Jack Cooper may have been the first disc jockey. Yeah, he may have been. Um if that's not an area I, I go into, I am not a, an expert on kind of the rise of the disc jockeys. I'm, my overall interest is more in kind of the dramatic content. Uh, but, yes, yeah, certainly he was playing musical records uh, very early on. And really there were a lot, of, a lot of radio content through the 20s. It's just, you know, these stations putting on the old 78 records and literally holding up a microphone <laughs> Close to the uh, the player, the the quality must have been horrible. But you can get away with that back then. Uh, oh yeah, and the, you know but, yeah. the thing about uh, Jack Cooper is funny. He had the airtime, but he was put on not at prime time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, he could bring in advertisers and stuff, but they they still would not give him um, those those prime times, which. Uh, Back then would have been your your evening hours from supper time until you know eight or nine. That's when people were just like television today. That's when they tuned into their radio. Uh, you know, and, it was, it was, and it's very important. Cause, go ahead. And I tried to look and look, you know, to see if there was anything online or anywhere of some of the shows that he did. I couldn't find anything, and I was wondering if there's anything out there. You know, not that I know of, and that's a it's just a tragedy. You, you flip through this book, you know, not quite 200 pages, but, um, and of course it includes a number of white authors or performers like Amos and Andy, but if you look at the actual black off, uh, performers, so few um, recordings survive of these shows that we know of. You know, I, I always hold out hope that somewhere out there, tucked away in a library or someone's basement, they'll uncover uh, some of these old uh, records that may have been cut of the shows, but I'm not aware of any recordings of his work offhand. Um, yeah. And it's a shame. It's really a shame because, like you said, it would be important to have that, even just a little three-minute you know, snippet or something. But I guess you got a lot of your information through the old um, black press back then, going through old newspapers. I did. Uh, there are a few repositories of small collections of of the scripts that some of these shows use. I can't remember if there might be a small selection of Cooper scripts uh, at one of the Chicago institutions. And sometimes those can give you a feel reading through it. You can maybe imagine what it would have sounded like. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, most of them we don't even have that kind of documentation and as I noted, I think in the preface, um, you know, often these programs were not sponsored, and a lot of documentation we have today for other shows survived in the archives of just the businesses that, you know, forked over the money for the show. So yeah, I I, it, I discovered that especially the New York 
uh, was it the Amsterdam News, the Defender in Chicago, the Pittsburgh uh, paper had some had some decent coverage of of the black radio programming at least in their their cities. And so, you know, it's maybe not sure you always want better documentation, but right. considering that's all we've got, boy, it's something and it's it's firsthand, it's responses, and these were people that loved radio and it was important to them and so it's it's better than no glimpse at all at least you know what we get from them that's the thing and uh, you know you mentioned the pittsburgh uh, courier i guess they had a radio show i guess it was the first continuous radio show in i think 27 the pittsburgh courier hour yeah um -hmm. and maybe another one will show up i kind of decided that was the earliest like you said, regularly programmed. I think it was weekly um, program that was uh, put on by African-American artists and and, and kind of the people involved, and they were writing the scripts and definitely geared towards black listeners and the content of their talks and um, the musical selections and stuff. But, yeah, that was 1927, and I don't remember off the top of my head. It seems like it ran for a year or two into the late 20s. I believe it did. Just ran for a year. And the thing, you know, and listeners, you can join in the conversation with Ryan Elliott at uh, uh-huh. the number here is four four two four six seven five eight three one five four two four six seven five eight three one five. And I want to, you know, you mentioned African American listeners. Now, at the time, you know, we're talking the late twenties, early thirties. As far as the owners of radios, it wasn't. It hadn't really boomed in one sense, but what, you know, what would you say, you know, you, you say in the book the percentage of probably black ownership in, in urban areas was like less than 15%. Yeah, I just reread that. I, I had forgotten that was such a, a stunningly low number, yeah. Um, it's, um, and it make you know, I yeah, mean, it that, makes sense at, the, at that time. It does make sense. Mm-hmm. And um, because of and I get you know, and if you're somewhere in the rural area, you can forget it if you got a radio and all. But besides that, talk about some of the other obstacles as far as African Americans getting on radio. Besides the obvious one of racism, but talk about some of the other obstacles. Well, some of the other ones that I, I uh, talk about a bit in the book, and they're ones that were not, uh, yeah, they're not quite so apparent. And I had to read through some volumes um, about radio at the time, and one of them was, uh, you know, music on, there was a lot of music broadcast on the radio, a lot of the, the live remotes, they called them, where they broadcast from a, a big local hotel and they'd have the big dance band or jazz band. And so that was a good opportunity for some of these black artists to get on the air. But the these hotels, of course, the musicians uh, were much more heavily unionized back then than they are now. I don't know what the state of that is is today, uh, but the in the unions it's kind atrocious of atrocious now. Yeah, it's really bad. I, I can imagine they the, the unions had a lot of say over who got booked where, and of course union management being, um, I assume you know all white, uh, they're going to prefer people they know and those of, of uh, that they liked, and so uh, even even the uh, Black members of the of the union would have, and their own uh, rep- representation would have been working against their their interest to get into these hotels. 
in the ballrooms and such. So uh, even within their own professional ranks, they, they had these obstacles to, to overcome. Uh, and, of course, yeah, as you mentioned, the station owners, uh, predominantly white, um, all white as far as I know. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head that early that had um, black owners or, or black leadership. Um you know, I don't know if we want to get into as the networks were coming together. You know, the late oh, yeah, 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 that and yeah. that that was a big thing. Of course, NBC founded in 1927, um, so still new at the time. But as it's coalescing, it's you know signing up uh, major stations in all the the metro areas and across the the country. Um, as it grows, it of course needs to appeal to larger and larger audiences to. Uh, justify the cost they have to charge to advertisers. And so their goal becomes, especially as you get into the 1930s, to minimize, they want um, to minimize any, uh, they want to minimize offending, of course, their their listeners. uh, And so that's going to include, that comes to include uh, minimizing the roles of any black characters so as to, avoid offending the, the sensibilities of the white uh, Southern listener of the time. So, uh, so you had all these things coming together, working together, uh, and I find it ironic, and I've had others comment to me, but it, it's kind of ironic that as the, the networks rose and, and, and actually had the power and, and the clout as you move into the 30s, where they could have really pushed some boundaries, and they had, um, they had the weight. They could have uh, pushed the... Uh, Black programming that they had really wanted to. They actually go the other way, and they, they retreat, and they um, provide less of it than there was even in the 20s. There's almost a regression, uh, and it's just it's a, a failure of the, the industry at the time. Yeah, which is really, you know, it's really something, because you had folks in the 20s like Bessie Smith, uh, Ma Rainey, and so many, you know, um, Louis Armstrong, so many folks who were on radio performing yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. And by the thirties, that kind of disappears. And it's you know, yeah, that's, yeah. go ahead. I was just to say, yeah, you know, the big names, Armstrong, and, and some of those guys, they they, they can, they'll keep their airtime in the thirties, and even get the occasional show or so. But yeah, the second tier artists that were able to get some airtime in the twenties, um, yeah, they they are, they're gone. They they've lost that chance. So, and you know, it's something because it is, it is radio. And you would think, and I know I've had some shows here where, and you mentioned some folks in the book who were behind, you know, were African Americans who wrote behind the scenes, who were writing some shows. And then yeah. you had some performers. And this is what gets me, because, you know, you still don't have many African American performers on the mic. But you have yeah. African Americans who could, if they were on, you wouldn't tell that they were white or black or anything, because it's radio. Yeah, talk about uh, if there's any any entertainment industry where your skin color shouldn't matter at all, yes, yeah, it's radio, and yet they, they probably fared even worse there than in motion pictures. And, um, of course, television hadn't uh, come into being yet, but right. uh, just uh, astounding. Well, it, it's, you know, when I was reading your book and read, reading other books about old-time radio and the African-American princess, it's just amazing to see that, you know, that would be the medium where you could put someone in. No one has to know who you are, but you have exactly. so many folks like the, you know, like the guys that created Sam and Henry that became Amos and Andy who were very profitable 
at that time yes. into the yeah. late 50s, you yeah. know, being white actors doing what they considered a black dialect, and they weren't the only ones. Because looking at your book and no. some of the research I did is looking for, you know, reading your book too, there were a lot of white entertainers yeah. Yeah. who were doing, were black, you know, the, black, who were black characters. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I call it black voice sometimes. I don't know if that's yeah. you know, if other historians <laughs> call it. But it's that kind of same thing, that this is what a black man must sound like. And so suddenly every other... Uh, and even I can recall, and I wish I could remember the name, I remember reading a snippet from a black actor complaining he hadn't gotten a role because they, they said he didn't sound black enough. <laughs> but I know, that's amazing. But, uh, you know, but then um, the funny thing, though, Ryan, too, is that um, you still hear that sometimes. I mean, it, even in movies now, in television, you'll still, there'll be African-American actors who will still complain that they'll go to Hollywood and someone will say, well, you don't speak black enough or you don't look black enough or you're not urban looking. You don't yeah. walk a certain way. So in the twenty first century it's continuing. It just continues. It's maybe more and subtle, can, but yeah, it's still still there. Yeah, it is definitely still there. Now talk to my listeners also about the you know, when you know, there is a and I'm gonna be playing these shows after we conclude this interview, but there is a glory period for actually African American programming and talk about that and, and entertainers on air and talk about that. Um what I would consider, and I hope we're, I'm thinking kind of the earlier period before the, or are you thinking towards the end of the radio era? Um, I'm looking more toward the, um, the beginning of World War II and all that. I as see. Far as, yeah, there was. Yeah. There were definitely some programs. Uh, Richard Durham is probably the most, I want to say famous, although as you kind of indicated, I'll put that in quotes because still your average um, your average listener probably um, wouldn't be familiar with Richard Durham, but he was a... And I actually did a though. show earlier. That there's a biography that came out at the end of last year that I had the author on about oh, great, Richard yes. Durham. And we did a whole show. Okay. And in fact, I'm going to be playing one of the uh, one of his shows after we do uh-huh. this interview. Yeah. So he had um, some shows there uh, out of Chicago. Um, again, it uh, seems like one of them, again, getting sponsors is always hard for these guys, and so um, they were critically acclaimed. I mean, they got great reviews, um, struggled to get a sponsor on. Uh, he was early, or he was late 40s, maybe. Uh, now I'm He was around, you know, in fact, I, the funny thing I learned uh, from the author who was on here earlier in the uh-huh. year is that he actually wrote some Lone Ranger episodes. He did, uh, yeah, and I'm... I've been talking to a, a guy I know who's currently doing some Lone Ranger research, research to ask. And he, he said in this, because I finished that biography uh, just a few weeks ago, I said, can you verify this or can you look into it? And he couldn't offhand, so he's going to look that up. But, yeah, it looks like he did a lot of just straight network, quote-unquote, white uh, programming, um, because, frankly, that's where – the money was. I mean, he was a working right. writer. He needed to get paid, and you know that's where the money was. Uh, that's what happened also to earlier Carlton Moss, who I profile in here, who right. uh, was kind of the kind of the genesis of what became this entire book was uh, reading about him. Uh, you know, he had to get into writing just the the white um, uh, broadcast because that's 
Starbucks that had the sponsors, and that's how you could make a living, which was their, yeah, their job it. ultimately. Uh, but out of New York, you had uh, a show called A New World of Coming, uh, which I know copies of that exist. Uh, and maybe I've played those, those before. Well. In fact, I may be playing one later okay. on, too. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, and again, this era uh, of programming, you're getting um, some public, um, I don't know, I don't want to call it a more self-awareness, but certainly more of a political edge in um, some of the stories and, and the approaches that the writers are taking. The early 30s, you had some good black drama, but it was just straight drama, kind of an alternative to, you know, with stories with um, black actors and, and characters. Right. Uh, in the 40s, kind of against the backdrop, of course, of, of the war uh, and uh, going over, going on in, in Europe and Japan. Uh, so these uh, black writers, I, I felt rightfully so emboldened to say, "Hey, look, we're, we're doing this overseas, and let's take a look at what's going on still, still back home." Um, and I know that um, was seen in other artistic areas as well. This um, this questioning of what America was really standing for uh, during this wartime. Right, and you know. And at that time, too, you still have Amos and Andy on. And I want you to talk about this because I've been there. There's a book out there about Amos and There's a number of books, but there's one author in particular who's written about Amos and Andy. I've tried to get them on her on here, but I think she thinks that I'm not going to be nice to her or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh-huh. You know, But I, I look at it as all, you know, because I've played Amos and Andy on here before. I played Sam and Henry just as the start of the show because it's all histo- it's history. It's very important to know the history. Yeah. yeah. Because everything you write in the book, the, the performers, the writers and all, it's still around in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. The shows yeah. you may see on something as like YouTube, besides network television or cable, but even YouTube, the genesis of some of the plots of these shows are basically come from things like Amos and Andy. Or, you know, or the Long Ranger. It's, you know, it's entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Angus and Andy, I guess, um, and I'm a white writer, and so um, I'm I'm not sure how to feel about that show. (laughs) So, yeah, I try to look at it in a historical context. Um, I, I think there were positives that maybe get overlooked in examining the rightful criticisms criticisms of it. Um, It was a place, a show on the air that depicted a, uh, probably one of the few that an average black listener could tune into since a lot of these shows we talk about in my my book were uh, small and, Local right. local broadcasts weren't heard across the network. It was one place that black listeners could tune in and hear the black community uh, portrayed on the air. And uh, of course, the two uh, actors were white, but you had, and they themselves were working class guys. You know, they owned the taxi cab company, but you had doctors on the show. You had lawyers. Um, you had you had the whole gamut of. Um, uh, of Harlem, where they that show was was uh, took place, and some of the the writers of the time, at least in the black press, 
I think tried to acknowledge that while Amos and Andy, well, especially uh, Andy, he was kind of the, he has the lower voice, and he's the one who's always right. trying to get an easy buck, and uh, Amos was much more a family guy, always trying to get it, uh, <clears throat> Andy Andy out of trouble and such. Um you know, I think they there was some appreciation that, um, hey, let's remember that. I mean, there were like I said, there's, I mean, there were professional um, uh, careers being portrayed here in very dignified um, manners in ways. You know, the stories were, um, it, it was comedy, but if you listen to the early ones, and there's not a lot of those around, unfortunately. Yeah, they're very dramatic. In early 30s. Yeah. It really That's was much more different. of a, yeah. a, a melodrama show. Um, and I I enjoy those. I appreciate them, I guess. The later shows in the 40s where you've got it's much more a gag-oriented um, program and probably much more like the television show would have been. I've never seen any of those. Um, it on the other flip side of like that, that. They, yeah, yeah like on the, the flip side, though, when you get into that era, the 40s, when they revamped it, um, they did bring on a lot of black performers. And I think a lot of that was kind of because of pressure that um, the black community was putting on on them. But you'll hear a lot of um, both male and female. Some of the, the best black actors of that time had recurring, ongoing roles on that show. Yeah. And they, you know, and the thing is, I mean, there were a number, from what I've seen in my research over the years, that Freeman Gosden and uh, Charles Carell were they were participants in a number of events sponsored by African Americans. Yeah. They participated in parades, and there was like this dichotomy. There was some neg- it was negativeness on the one hand of the show in some instances, but on other instances, from what I've seen, frankly. The majority of the African American community at the time really liked the show because, as what you're saying, it does show. Except in the case of like Kingfisher Lightning, you don't well, get really yes, the no. deep stereotypes that you get like on the Beulah show, or yes, um, yeah. you know, especially when they, when they yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and I don't recall when Lightning and uh, Kingfisher. All you can do is cringe when you hear those characters. I don't know if they were. I'm not sure when they were introduced in the, in the series, but that's really what got me looking on this topic in the first place. I was kind of curious to know um, what what did the black listeners or the black press anyway, what did they think of the show? I mean, a lot of the um, books published about the show, kind of critiquing the show, um, really spend more time focusing on the television program, I think that's really colored um, the Amos and Andy legacy um, in popular culture. Um, not nearly as many people. And then, frankly, the television as, show actually, when you compare it to some things that came on after that, and some things that may be on right now, Amos and Andy was a very it was a very tame and very funny show on television. And it shouldn't, yeah, and, in my opinion, it just shouldn't have been bad. I mean, there are some things worse, horrible, that really should have been bad that never were. And it showed yeah. a, you know, despite all the, you know, some of the silliness, it showed a stable community. 
yeah, and maybe that's a good term for what I was trying to think of, you know, uh, again, in the early serial, Amos and Andy serial in the, in the 30s. It, it did. It depicted the gamut of a, of a solid um, black community from your working cab drivers up to, yeah, the business, the bankers, the local bankers and the right. uh, the black-owned black owned, uh, business leaders. Um, they all intermingled on on a daily basis in these shows. Uh, and compare, you know, and you got to keep in mind, too, at the time that you could, you know, we were talking about other radio shows, but also in newspapers, sometimes the depiction of African Americans was usually, not usually, most of them it was negative. You rarely saw a positive image. It usually was a yeah, crime yeah. story. Yeah. You know, you yeah, would, think, in the movies, you don't know when, you know, you would sit there and you would see a serious movie, let's say a Betty Davis Humphrey Bogart movie that era, something like that, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, here's mm-hmm. this black character This has nothing to do with the plot but doing some silly practice, just doing something embarrassing. I was going to say, yeah, he comes shuffling in and he does some sort of yeah. a crack ball to get a, to get a joke, a laugh or something to, to lighten and then the you mood. Go back to your and then you go Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think the press at the time appreciated um, the show, um, that it, the dignity that it did provide, especially in comparison to, I think, some of the other imitations of Amos and Annie, who I think were much more just oh, baldly uh, racist and offensive. Oh, the, the uh, two kind of black of crows. If you, two I black know crows. You've heard that one. Oh, that's uh, awful. Guys, pick and pat. Uh, oh, God. Uh, you know, there the pair called Molasses in January, and I'm sure they were all kind of the same, just. Uh, Right. I mean, you can find records from the 20s, kind of vaudeville. Yeah, it's just awful, awful stuff. It makes you cringe. I mean, Amos and Andy was nothing like that, fortunately. But um, it, it, anyway, <laughs> so. Yeah, I know. But the only cringe, were, you know, actually, the only thing that you really could, you know, some of the dialect, you could cringe. I sure. cringed at that. But the thing yeah. that they always said that Gonston and Freeman, you know, and Carell always said that they made a mistake when they made a movie, Check and Double Check, oh, and they appeared yeah. in blackface. They said they should yes. never have done that. Yeah, I, that, and I think and I think you were getting at this. They really did um, respect their audience, and I really think they thought they were doing what they were doing was was a positive thing, and in some ways it probably was. Um, and they they did a lot of outreach too in the black community, you know, parades and all this kind of stuff that you mentioned um, in Chicago, sponsored vendor and stuff. And they had huge rallies and, and this and that. Um, yeah, very popular. Uh, but yeah, that movie came out. Gosh, I don't know, thirty thirty one. I had a copy of it at one point. Yeah, I've had it. It's, um, it's the irony of that movie too is that the music is by Duke Ellington. Yes, yeah, great, great soundtrack. Um, blackface, no blackface is a terrible movie, but yeah, having the them per, actually portraying Amos and Andy on on film was. Uh, yeah, I mean that yeah. that was like forgettable. They they, forgettable. they they even admit they said they they shouldn't have done that. And the sad thing about that too, that movie is that, from what I read, Ryan, it it was a box office smash. I forget what company had that. It may have been MGM, but they, it was like one of the top five box office movies of that year. 
you know, that wouldn't surprise me. I don't get into the movie much, but, I mean, they were so popular. Um, you know, there's kind of legends about movie theaters pausing their movies and right. the world, you know, the country coming to a stop. And, I mean, there's some questions, how accurate was that really? But, I mean, this was something popular at a level that certainly today there's nothing that can captivate the uh, commercial audience like this show did. The closest thing that would be now would be probably for one day would be the Super Bowl. Yeah, like the Super Bowl. I mean, they had close to half the the available listeners were tuning in and day after day after day. Um, So, yeah, really anything they did was just a, a money machine. And so that's what that film was, I'm sure, just uh, cashing in oh, on yeah. their, their success. But, yeah, we're you know we're going to be getting ready to get out of here with this interview. But I wonder, okay. how long did it take you to research this book? And what, what <laughs> actually prompted you to decide to do? Because there, there have been a number of books out there about on-time radio, and I was just glad that you made the book about black radio. But what prompted you really, you know, outside of there being a lack of that? <laughs> Yeah, it really started out, well, on my question, I was investigating, okay, what did um, black journalists, black listeners think of Amos and Andy at the time? And so that was, I was doing some research there, and it in one article, the writer mentions a show called Careless Love by Carlton Moss. And he says, yeah, he likes Amos and Andy, but it's got nothing on uh, Carlton Moss's Careless Love, which was on NBC. And I thought, hmm, I've never heard of this guy. Who's this? What is his show? Um, so I, I went and looked him up and just finding bits and pieces. And, again, I dig into the, the magazines of the time, the newspapers, and um, start uncovering this guy who, in by 1930, was writing half-hour uh dramas that were broadcast on across the NBC network, you know, ju- not just in New York, not just in Chicago, but the network was carrying these. And they were, you know, he was a black writer and they were black centric stories. He was hiring, um, you know, black actors to be in them. Storylines were geared towards black listeners. And my jaw just dropped because this was not a name I had ever heard, even in the other books. That's that, amazing. Right. Delve a little bit into it. And I think there's still so much more uh, to be learned on him. I, I hope. He just died in the 90s, I think. So he's not been gone a long time. I think there's so much more to discover about this guy. Are um, those shows, I was wondering, are, are those shows around? Or are they also lost? And- again, not to my knowledge. Um, I've never come across one. I, I hold out hope that maybe someday they will because they were picked up network wide and because he was writing radio uh, into the mid thirties, which by then it was much more common to be recording the show. So I still hold out hope someday there'll be uh, one will be uncovered or even a horde of, of scripts. So we could really look at the content of these shows. It would be quite a find. I get people emailing every now and then. Well, do you know anything more about this Carlton Moss guy or where I could get this or that? I said, no, but keep looking because, Gotta get more on this guy. He's a major find. I think that is still waiting to be um, uh, re- rediscovered. Oh, there's so I many. There's so many folks in the book that you know. When I was read the, when I first got the book a number of years ago, I started reading an encyclopedia and I was saying, God, I wish I 
can find this. And I was digging everywhere for some of these folks. Mm-hmm. And I just hope it, you know, some of this stuff turns up because it's very, That's, you know, very important. I do too. I, I think this book, it fills a niche, but at the same time, if it would inspire years down the road, 10 much more detailed books really filling in the story, then I'll feel like, all right, I did my job. I got the ball rolling. I at least let people know these guys, these women, they were around. They were doing this. That was half the problem. We didn't even right. know about them. But now we do. Now we do. Let's go see what's out there. Let's get some. Well, I'm just glad that young... you got this encyclopedia out. Now, you know, I, you know, I, I got to ask you this one too. There's someone that's a, obviously old time history buff as I am too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Does it bother you when folks? Past who were in radio in the, I would say now the 40s, 30s and 40s, who have passed in a number of years that they never mentioned in their obituaries that they were in radio. Like, let's say, for instance, someone like Vincent Price or, you know, that they had these careers yeah. that were just forgotten, yeah. forgetting, you know, people don't even know this. Yeah, I, and it, it just contributes to the state of or lack of state of scholarship of radio history. I mean, you've got libraries filled with volumes on motion pictures and television and and pretty much everything except radio. And why that right. is, I don't know. But but even even those who were in it, you know, you look at variety obituaries from people in the last 20 years who have died who started on radio, but we're lucky if they even mention their work there. It was almost like the people themselves in it were – um, didn't think that much of it, and that it was TV and film. That was the real, the real entertainment. I, I just—it's so ironic when you, as you know, when you listen to some of the old radio shows, they'll have someone on, let's say, I was just thought Clark Gable was on. They say star, stage, screen, and radio. Uh-huh. They would always say that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, radio. It, yeah, it's, uh, it's, some, it's amazing. And, I, you know, that's why I do, you know, this show as far as every now and then doing old-time radio because it's important to keep that out there. And, again, I'm just glad that you have put the book out there and glad to finally get you on here. And are you going to be working on any sequel, any other, besides your uh, your website, anything else you're working on as far as connection to radio? Yeah, I have another book uh, in the works right now. It's focusing more on some of the the writers of the era. Um, Not another volume on uh, black performers, unfortunately. It'd be great someday if there's enough content. Yeah, right now, as I get new stuff, I try to put some things on my website. I have a a blog that I just started this year that I'll be putting some things up on the year. I did discover just a month or so ago a reference in Variety, Langston Hughes. This was mid-40s, had a radio show or a radio series that he had at least outlined, maybe written a few scripts I've heard shopping it. around. Yeah. But, um, but I never, I, I, I have no evidence that it was ever aired, but uh, it's fascinating to think somewhere maybe there's some radio scripts. That he, he did a number of albums in the, in the mid-60s. Kind of some, uh, some of his work stuff, maybe. Yeah, and but I've read that I think in his bio that he was doing, he was he was around. You know, I mean, he was with Richard Dorman, all of them, and they, 
Uh, and he was writing scripts, but I don't know if he ever got anything on the air. If yeah, he actually had his own show. That's yeah, so again, yeah, little little nuggets still still uh, arise. I think there's more to be uncovered there. <laughs> well, well, tell my listeners uh, you know, how to connect with you as far as your blog and your website. Sure. Uh, the website is just ryanellett, R-Y-A-N-E-L-L-E-T-T.com, um, and it's got a list of my latest books and, and articles and stuff. Um, I can't tell you my blog. It's a, I have a link to my blog there, um, and I, I'm pretty sure I have. Well, I hope I hope, my, hope I had my email on there, so I like people to <laughs> get in touch with me. Uh, but I love getting emails. They didn't happen very often. This is, as you can imagine, not a field that too many are interested in. So emails are far and few between. But I love hearing that people are reading my stuff and. and Digging further into it, I, I don't get much of that, but when I do, it's, it's very rewarding. Well, I'm just glad you wrote this book that you're doing that out there, and it, you know, really appreciate you coming on the show. As I said before, I, you know, I was, when I first got the book a number of years ago, I said I got to have him on, but <laughs> scheduling and all that, and so I'm just happy uh-huh. to have you on at this time. So, Ryan, I just want to thank you so much for being on today. We got to get you back on here again. Yes, it's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All right, you take care, Ryan. You too, Greg. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was Ryan uh, Elliott, author of the book Encyclopedia of Black Radio in the United States, 1921-1955, on McFarland Press. And I have been looking forward to getting him on for a number of years. This book is a, for me, it's a Bible as far as this old-time radio and just learning so much. And every time I open it, I, I see something new that I just missed before, a performer, you know, some radio, some obscure radio station in a, in Texas or something I didn't know that actually had some radio, you know, African-American entertainers on it. Just, it's just fascinating just to read it. So, yeah, just it's really, really great, great encyclopedia. And when I'm saying encyclopedia, it's not a giant thing. So don't say, oh, it's about a thousand pages. I'll never get that. No, it's not. It's not that. It's very concise. I think you would enjoy it. I know you would, but we're going to get to a radio show here now. And before I do that, I just want to say hi again to my friends out there. I don't think I said hi to my friends out in Colorado who listen on a delayed basis on Wednesdays or Saturdays on KUHS Denver Radio and Television that was created by the great one and only Henry Archuleta. So I'm happy to be on this radio station, but we're going to get to a show, uh, and I've played Destiny's Freedom Destiny's Freedom before on this show, you know, some of their programs, so I'm going to do another one. This is um, the story of Denmark Vasey, and if you don't know who Denmark Vasey is, you'll learn from listening to this. So let's hear this on the Root and Root Show. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be Destination Freedom. 
Chicago Defender and Station WMAQ bring you Destination Freedom, a new radio series dramatizing the great democratic traditions of the Negro people interwoven in the pageant of history and a part of America's own Destination Freedom. Today, Destination Freedom tells the story of the daring Denmark Vesey and fought for the end of slavery 20 years before John Brown and the Civil War. Denmark Vesey. They say slaveholders' court was crowded that day in Charleston. They say the culprit... They say all was over but the hanging. And soon the masters could sleep, could rest. prisoner come before the bench to be sentenced. He's coming. They grab at him, but he walks straight. <laughs> He's a cool one. He'll be a dead one in an hour. He'll walk no more. He'll hang for all the walking he's done. Clerk, read out the record of his crime. They say he walked as though the world watched him. They say the clerk read out his crimes. They say a gamble was the beginning of it. A gamble one night at a carnival when he bought a $40 play on a lottery wheel and stood under the tent while the barker called in the bet. The greatest raffle in history. Get your bet in, folks. Get them in. That's all. We're off. As he goes round and round and where she'll stop, nobody knows. The greatest gamble in history. Round and round and he's stopping. Don't get excited, ladies and gentlemen. He's stopping. He's stopping on number six, seven, eight, nine. Little old number nine is the winner. The winner. Number nine pays a hundred to one. Who's got number nine, folks? You? You got number nine, fella? I got it. How much am I worth? The number in sight saves the fight. Show it. Here. Ah, uh, name goes with it. Did Mark Vizzy. Check. Check. All right. Beginner's luck will break me. You gamble heavy. I always gamble heavy. Say, you're Captain Vizzy's slave, ain't you? I am. Ah. I wonder what had happened to me, say, if I just refused to pay off a slave. I wonder if the courts had bothered. Uh-huh. Well, I wonder what would happen to me. Say, if I should take a barker's neck between my fingers, like this broomstick, and snap it like that. They'd hang you. You know it. I gambled once. I'll gamble again. Well, uh, I'm not a gambling man myself. I don't gamble on my own neck. Then how much am I worth? $4,000. All right. Take it and the devil be with you. They say Denmark wrapped his money in a sack and went aboard his ship to see his master. Captain Vesey was napping over a jug of rum. Denmark. Denmark, is that you? Yes. What you come here for? Master, how much am I worth? Ah, 
it's that talk again. Uh, this, uh, this uh, freedom is a sickness. It's unbecoming to a slave. Master, all I want... Get it out of your mind. It's those books you read that turn your head. A slave shouldn't read too much. I've watched you talk to the people in the market. You tell the slaves they're born equal. Oh, nonsense. Master. If you stay with me, you'll stop this reading and writing to everybody. Where'll it get you? Lately, I've stopped reading. Yeah, I know. I know. But now you're outworking your spare time for other masters. You get a penny here, a penny there. Denmark hopes to save enough to buy Denmark. You know how long that would take you? I know. All your life. I need money, too. I know how hard it comes these days. Why don't you sell me? Ah, if I could get your price. How much am I worth? Oh, I'd say uh, $2,000. All right. $2,000. Oh, what? You, you've got 2000 I've got my release papers. Will you sign them? Sign? You need the money. Yeah, yeah. I need my freedom. Hmm. Well, uh, oh, you'd find a way to escape if I didn't let you go. My pen. Uh, I feel like I am releasing a tornado. There. What will you do with this uh, freedom? What will you do with this money? Hmm. I use it to help me and my family. Well, I'll use my freedom to help others become free. Hmm. I never understood you, Denmark. Uh, pour me a drink. And then finish sweeping my cabin. Are you asking me or ordering me? Hmm. <laughs> I see. You you begin right away. Huh? It's strange to have owned a man's body for 20 years, yet not know the first thing about his mind. You're free. say the captain set him free to circulate like fresh blood through the slave system. A basket of cherries. Huh, for Denmark. <laughs> you can afford cherries? Yesterday I was a slave. Today I'm a free man. Uh-huh, I heard about your luck. You can have the same luck, cherries. They say you're a learned man, Denmark. <laughs> but now you talk like a donkey. My master spends the money I make. Well, I get in it to buy myself. Well, it's not money alone that makes a man free, Cherry. Money did quite well for you. Then a gamble. I know a greater gamble. Would you gamble? If the stakes were right. If the stakes were freedom. If I could show you that every slave in Charleston is ripe to rebel, to build a nation where all men are equal, would you stake your life on it? Are you willing? Are my cherries red? Blood red. Must take the in. Get the others. All right. Cherries, master. Cherries. Get your red rock. Cherries. Cherries. They say Denmark's disease hit the slaves in the marketplace like a plague. They say he believed no slave was immune to it. And he risked a talk with Rolla Hard, the wealthy slave of Colonel Potter. Rolla and his brother Ogden, who'd never been hungry, never last, spaded their garden and talked to Denmark. Who am I to be in a revolution? The masters leave me alone. I leave them alone. I never know what they're doing. But you know what the slaves are doing, Rolla. You're sent to talk to them when there's trouble. 
Isn't that true, Ogden? Yes, we talked to him all right. You talk uncommonly well, too, Roller. I've heard you tell a slave when the train was coming on the underground track. I've heard you Keep tell... Keep your voice down. Then, Mark, don't talk that way around here. Roller, you worked well for the masters. Now, work well for yourself. You know every slave who can handle a horse. The day will come, we'll need him. Will you be with us? I'll I know when the day comes. Yes. I'll we know it's safe. When our numbers have grown. If you come and bring all those who follow you, we'll have a thousand. If I come, they'll come. But some will only follow the gospel man, Peter Poyas. He's a man of peace. What'll you do about him? You recruit your friends. I'll recruit Peter. They say Denmark read the Bible that night. Read Exodus, Leviticus, Joshua, and Job. And in the morning went to the cabin of the slave Peter. Peter sat singing, rocking in a chair, and looking out at the sun. Oh, when the saints come marching in, oh, Lord, I want to be in their number. When the saints come marching in. Peter, last night I read the Bible. I I read it every night, Denmark. I read the words of Zechariah. I know the words of Zechariah. Zechariah said, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Charleston is Jerusalem, Peter. Denmark, the Lord warned Gideon wants to be careful about the men he picked to lead his army. There may be a Judas among the slaves. You're no Judas. I am not. But I'm against violence. I'm against bloodshed. Are you against slavery? God's against it. Then how will you cure it? Can you reason with slaveholders? It's a chancy thing. But your way is foolish and certain death. I... I see your mind is set. It's wrong. But I'll march in Gideon's army. My followers will come with me. But the superstitious follow Gullah Jack. Gullah? The, the sorcerer who sells spells and charms? Him? My son. In a revolution, one looks for the honest, not the honored. Some say Gullah Jack is crazy. Some say he's wise. You go to the hills and find his house and see. It'll be deep in the woods. You'll hear him talking to his drums, calling on his God. Come at night to buy a charm. Come at twilight. Ah. Denmark Vesey, the disbeliever. Why do you come? I come to test your spells. First, twist your neck and tap your knee. Snap your fingers. Tie together black men and white men in a common fight to free every man. 
cast a charm that'll bind them together like a Gideon's army to strike with me when the hour comes. If you are the sorcerer they say you are. So, is this the only reason you're here? Is there a better reason? Go back to your books and leave me alone. You come with contempt for me. And you say, sorcerer, cast a spell and make men free. I'm crazy, but I'm not a fool. If I could cast a charm to free a man, wouldn't I cast one to free myself, huh? <laughs> then what good do your charms do? They're for the lonely, the lost. Those who want to be free don't come to me. They know I can't heal their sickness. Peter said you might be an honest man, and you are. I'll show you how you can help free men. You? Listen, Gala. Huh? I read once of a giant who fell asleep in a strange land. And while he slept, an army of little men tied him with ropes and chains. The giant was a slave while he was asleep. But when he awoke, he stretched and shook himself. And the chains snapped and the ropes broke. And the little men fell off his back and he stood up strong and free. He was a giant. You and the slaves are giants. The masters are the little men. When the slaves wake and stretch, they'll be free. You can help awaken those who believe in your spells, Gullah. I see. Maybe I can help. They say Denmark and Gullah Jack... Rollerhart and Peter Poise had a pact to wake up the giant and put the slaveholder to sleep. They say the recruits grew into thousands, and the day was near when Denmark's disease could not be quarantined. They say Denmark gathered his leaders together in the loft of a lonely barn to set the hour. This will be the last meeting. Rolla, who knows we're here? Only my brother, Ogden. I told him to warn us if he heard anything from the masters. Good. You've got to gather the horses and riders. Every slave who handles a horse will be ready to pull cannons once we get them. Gullah, I've been to the arsenal. I cast a spell for the captain just yesterday. This time of year, it's full of cannon and powder. If we take the arsenal, the city is ours. Good. You, Peter. Denmark, what we planned is wrong. God won't let it succeed. The Lord spoke to me last night. Yes. He said... Watch out for the Judas. You said that before. We were all watching. No one's watching Rolla. He talks too freely. What have I said? What about the colonel's houseboy, Jason, overheard Rolla talking. He'll tell his master, I'm sure. Rolla takes our lives on his tongue. Peter, you'll accuse no one until you're certain. The book teaches to watch for the Judas. We'll head off the Judases. Peter, set your men for Sunday. What in the world? Rolla, Denmark, the founders. What? What are you talking about, Austin? Run while you can. They're coming for us. Who's coming? Who knows about us? Everybody. Who, who told them you? No, no, not me, Jason, the houseboy. I said Rolla talked too much. I warned you. The Lord is against us. Be quiet, will you? It's no time to be quiet. You've got to run. Run? And in the four years we worked and planned for this day, we'll stand our ground what here. What do we do, Denmark? What do we do, huh? Rolla. Yes? The colonel is your master. You'll face him. What? There's not much time. I can see them coming from here. They'll be here in a minute. Now, Rolla, tighten your nerves. Go down and meet them. Why, Denmark? You'll face your master. 
You out-talk him or we'll all hang. Go on. Shall I cast a charm for Rolla? No. Let Rolla cast his own charm now. Go down, Rolla. They say Denmark waited in the loft while Rolla climbed down the ladder and walked to the door to face his accuser. They say the colonel had the revolution resting at his gunpoint. Master! Come in. Needn't say master to me anymore, boy. When this is done, you'll be dead. What? Don't play the fool. Jason told me about your plot. But before I have you shot, you'll give me the name of every leader and recruit in your rebellion. Rebellion? Me? What What are you talking about, Master? God. Yes, sir. Bring up Jason. Yes, sir. Get up here, you. Colonel, you call me? Jason, tell forgetful Rolla what you overheard. Um. I heard him say he'd get men to, to burn the plantations, overthrow the slave system, the way he put it. You hear that, Rolla? Huh. Poor Jason. Feel sorry for yourself. I feel sorry for you, Master, for believing him. You're the best slave you've got. I've worked harder, earned more for you than Jason, haven't I? Yes, you've done that. Why, I'm the wealthiest slave in Charleston. I eat well. I've never complained or asked for anything. Yes, that's right. Then wouldn't it seem I like my slavery? I love my masters? It would seem a sane man would. If you kill me, who'll handle your cotton? Who'll learn the way I do? Devil, if you're not right. Doesn't seem natural that you'd rebel now, does it? No, it doesn't. Jason... There are rumors enough without your adding to them. Oh, but, Master... God, I... take him to the yard. Yes, sir. Thirty lashes. Yes, sir. Oh, no. Come on, Jason. Rolla. Yes, sir. Tomorrow we'll talk and get to the bottom of this. You've always had a glib tongue, but there's something deeper in you I've never understood. There'll come a day when I'll... I'll know what's in your mind. Yes, Master. There is coming that day. Uh, forgive my suspicion, Rolla. Judas has been found in time. I've been wrong. You do well for a wealthy slave. I'd rather be the poorest free man than the richest slave. Denmark, when do we strike? Tomorrow. There'll be militia heading this way. We know it now. We've got to beat them to the arsenal. Peter. Yes. Go to the masters who've heard of the rumors of revolt. Pour honey in their ears. I'll speak softly. Gullah, give your master the strongest sleeping charm you can make. You'll never wake from it. All right. Now, I'll draw a map of the marketplace here in the dirt. Yeah. Yes. Now, this is the arsenal. Mm -hmm. Here's the street leading to it. Here the horsemen will wait. One will drive off and tell the slaves... As soon as we open the arsenal. All right. All right. After that, Gullah takes the left flank and Peter takes the right. Now, everything depends on getting into the arsenal ahead of the militia. 10,000 slaves wait to strike when we get the weapons. Who will warn us if the militia comes? There's a chairwoman in the market. I'll tell her to warn us. If the militia beats us there, shall we turn back? Where would we run? Where would we turn? This is a one-way walk, men. And look ahead to liberty or death. Yes. All right. 
They're about the map. Go to your people and tell them when the moon is down to fall in behind us as we walk through the market. When I pass the cherry woman, I'll tell her how to warn us. Will she come? the road clear, Cherry? It's clear, but the militia's on the way. Can you warn us when you see them? I'll stand in their way selling Cherry. And when I call Blood Red, they own it. They may take your life for this. My stakes are in. Let me sell my cherries. All right. We'll see what we can buy over at the arsenal. Peter, you ready? The Lord has spoken. Gullah? <laughs> Twist your neck and tap your knee. When the moon goes down, I'll be free. All right. Rolla. I'm with you. All right. Play casual. Peter, sing along. The revolution is on. Go marching on. When the saints go marching on Oh, Lord, I want to be in that number Oh, when the saints go marching on Grapevine to hear the arsenal crack The militia broke into the city and charged the market Denmark was near the gates of the arsenal They say you could hear the cherry woman cry When her eyes caught sight of the soldiers They say the shots tore down like a vine off a tree. Red cherries jumped into the gutter. Red blood shot from the wounded men. Red cherries rolled under the feet of the fighting, the straining, the reaching to be free. The reaching fell short. The militia took the arsenal. They say they took a hundred dead men to their graves. They took Denmark D.C. to court. Denmark, V.C.? Yes, Your Honor. You've plotted rebellion against the state that bred you. You set out to slaughter your master and change the state. Before I pass sentence, do you have a word to explain your crimes? I... I have a word to say. Then speak it. You speak of my crimes. I feel no guilt. I felt to be idle while other men thought to be free was a crime. I was not idle. Others talked. I acted. I'd act again. Oh, just don't listen to me. Is that all you can say to explain your treachery? No. My treachery began when I read the Declaration of Independence. It said all men are created equal. It grew when I read that black Crispus Attucks died to help the colonies become free. Did he die just to free white men or all men? And then I read what Ben Franklin Tom Paine, Lafayette, and Jefferson had said, and their words warmed my blood. They wanted their revolution to make all men free and equal. But they stopped 
with some men free and some men slaves. I took up where they left off. I found my price when I was a slave. I paid it. If my life is the price I pay to be free, take it. I'll pay it. But until all men are free and equal, the revolution goes on. They say the court called for the highest price. The clerk stopped writing. The hangman's hand tightened, then relaxed on the rope. Denmark had paid it. The masters went home to bed. But they say Gullah Jack in his cell cast a spell, and no master slept well. They say the giant was awake, and the giant never slept again until all slaves were free. That's what they say about Denmark Vesey. Destination Freedom's dramatization of the story of Denmark Vesey. Destination Freedom is brought to you by the Chicago Defender and WMAQ's Department of Education and Public Service. It is written by Richard Durham, and the production is under the direction of Homer Heck. The cast included Oscar Brown, Jr., Ray Grant, Howard Hall, Kurt Kupfer... Jack Lester, Charles Mountain, Arthur McCool, Cliff Norton, Fred Pinkard, and Louise Pruitt. The singer was Greg, Greg Pascoe. Richard Shores composed the special music which was played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. This is Franklin Ferguson inviting you to be with us again next week for another of our series on the Negro in Democracy, Destination Freedom. This is WMAQ, NBC in Chicago. I hope you enjoyed that uh, installment of Destination Freedom from 1948, uh, created by Richard Durham, who we were talking about earlier, who, and I did a whole show about him earlier in the year. I hope you enjoyed that as we dedicate the show to uh, old-time radio, in particular African-Americans who were on radio at that time. And I'm going to do another show here. I've done... I've played Jubilee before, but this is another uh, cut of the Jubilee show. And Jubilee was a show. This one is from November 8, 1943. It was a show only that was only folks, folks in the armed forces. That's easy to say. Folks in the armed forces could listen to this show during World War II. But years later, it was released on so the whole public. Everyone could hear it, but it was only something you could hear on the barracks and, you know, if you were at war or something, wherever you you know, it was just for the you know, just for the troops. So I'm gonna play right now and it was really geared toward it was for everyone but in particular geared for eventually African American troops. 
because this show had nothing but African. And sometimes they would have a white performer. It was mostly African-American performers. So I'm going to play Jubilee from November of 1943, and this features the Nat King Cole Trio, Louis Jordan, and so many other folks. So let's hear that. I hope you enjoy this one on the Root and Root Show. Is there a doctor in the house? Oh, hiya, Doc. Take that stethoscope out of your auditory apparatus and become a mellow medic. It's Jubilee. Wake up in the morning singing, Oh, Lola Bianca, thy lips as crimson berries? Does the skipper of your pewter scooter insist on bringing you crackers and milk when you stash the frame in a lily white? Does your first sergeant remind you of your mother? Well, you can help make the mild as turn of temper. If you have them take the jive that's about to spew from Jubilee's frigate, you'll hear King Cole and his mighty trilly trio, Little But Oh My, Ida James, and the band that's making history here in the land of yeah man, Louis Jordan. And now here's your master of ceremonies, the answer to the government's fat problem, Ernie Whitman. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Men are really going to peel some skin off of the apple tonight. Before the joint gets jumping, I want to acknowledge some mail from B.J. Stutz and the gang at Motor Torpedo Squadron 2, C. Fitzgerald Jr., Staff Sergeant Walter Green. Joe Moulton, Corporal George Bowman, Sergeant D.O. Van de Waal, Charlie Tent, Floyd Overstreet, L.C. Tillman, Bill Lastu, and all the groovy gusses at APO 709. Thanks for the darling, the stuff is on the way. Meantime, I think we ought to dedicate our opener to the aforementioned cat, don't you, Louis Jordan? I concur heartily with the Miller suggestion about which you have just banged. Up your cankery crockery, ain't it? <laughs> Well, concur with the section spots on the pulsating boat. I will. I thank you.
thank you, Louis Jordan, for a mellow swing in your treble hammer. And now, in answer to a few melatonin tons of email that have been gleaned by important peoples, we bring you one of the most sensational threesomes of digit manipulators that ever backed the frames up our alley. Jubilee does a three-quarter bow to Nat Cole and the King Cole Trio. Say, Nat, have you a word or two for the cats and kittens on the beam? Yes, Ernie. Me and my boys would like to loosen our lips for Corporal James Marshall and James Watkins at APO 950 and George Gregorovius. Wow. Fireman second class aboard the YMS 216. I hope they and all the members of Sam Mellow's Majesty's remember to stay next to Fly around. Took a monkey for a ride in the air. The monkey thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back, but the monkey grabbed his neck and said, Now listen, Jack. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Harper, don't you blow your top. Ain't no use in diving. What's the use in diving? Straighten up and fly right. Down, Papa, don't you blow your top. The brother told the monkey, you are choking me. Release your hold, and I will set you free. The monkey looked the brother right dead in the eye. He said, your story is so touching, but it sounds like a lie. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Righteous Rondelay ought to help Northern Knuckles off a midget digits. <laughs> and now, Louis Jordan. I hear you calling me, Teuton. Pull the query in my auditory apparatus, and I'll give vent to my reaction in a super display of vocal gymnastics. Mm. <laughs> All I wanted to know was, what are you going to lay on the guys? Me and the plumbers in my lower New Guinea gut bucket and Boogie Woogie Society want to do... If you can't smile and say yes, <laughs> please don't cry and say no. Begin at the beginning, L.J. Knock me a kiss, you'll never miss when I'm ready to go. But if you can't smile and say yes, please don't cry and say no. Squeeze me a squalls in these fine clothes. Babe, I love you so. 
But if you can smile and say yes, please don't cry and say no. When I ask for a date, the answer is no. You don't know what you're saying. Don't you know the war's on, everything is ration. How about that jive, keep me alive. Let bygones be bygones, cause men are scarce to nylon. You can't smile and say yes, please don't cry and say no. Grapevine a load of till the real thing comes along. He lays it on you. Begin at the beginning, Faye. Yeah. 
She smiles, all the cats in our alley climb a fence. <laughs> Take down their topes and fur. When she winks her big peepers, these same cats arch their vertebrae, prepare for a batch of back scratching. <laughs> so it's nice that Jubilee has repaired on Slammer and invited her over for her fifth appearance in Hot On Hall. Introduce yourself, darling. Hello, all you fine people. This is Ida James. Goodness, that's an awful big hand for such a little girl. Incidentally, Ida, we have a mellow message from Sergeant John H. Mack at APO 502. He says that all the guys in Company B, 267 Quartermaster Battalion, have girlfriends, and he wants a song dedicated to them. Well, Ernie, that can be arranged, and I also would like to include Private Jimmy Hope at 635, Private Hugh Danvers at 4th Base Depot, FMF, Private Jim Davis, another Marine at the same digging, Doug Langdean at 457, and the gang at APO 43, especially E.J. Pelletier, somewhere across a mellow pond.
got a guy that's always late Every time we have a date But I love him Yes, I love him I'm gonna walk up to his gate And see if I can get it straight Cause I want him I'm gonna ask him Is you in? Oh, is you ain't? My baby, the way you're acting lately makes me doubt. Cause you is still my baby, baby. Or has my flame in your heart done gone out? Amen. Thank you, 
Thank you, little Ida. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. And now, Louis, I hear you wrote a song for Jubilee. Yes, I did, honey. I call it Jumping at the Jubilee. And with your permission, I want to dedicate it to all the men of the United Nations who are doing the fighting on land and sea in all the five corners of earth. Five corners? <laughs> I thought there were only four corners on the earth. Well, there were, but we include uh, Little Jack Corner. Oh, <laughs> who's writing your material? <laughs> Why, Mister, these five. <laughs> go ahead, Louis, go ahead. <laughs> About a quarter to ten We'll dig the jubilee when it begins Won't you glamorous as you can be When we start jumping at the jubilee Wear your gown with a low-cut back We want to fall in sharp as a tack We'll be happy as we can be When we start jumping at the jubilee When the dance begins We'll take a spot right near the band Get our kicks and melowets Just dig in the beat of the drummer man We'll give them something to see. Just fall in, baby, and follow me. We'll be happy as we can be. We start jumping at the Jubilee. Follow me, we're gonna give them something to see. Cause we'll be happy as we can be. We start jumping at the Jubilee. We'll be happy as we can be. We start jumping at the Jubilee. face and once again come phrase to phrase of the coal who has a net handle. As digit part of the King Cole trio, we call him to massage his gums about the next tune. Go ahead, Nat. Hey, we got a little song called I'm Just a Rhythm. I'm sorry, I'm just an errand boy for rhythm. Send me. Sounds like a nice brace of sharp and flat, Nat. Begin at the beginning. <laughs> Get a shit and get about. I'm an errand boy for rhythm. Send me. Lace your boots and follow through. I'll deliver straight to you. I'm an errand boy for rhythm. Send me. 
You can always find me down in Smokey Joe's. That's the place where all the gals gators go. If you want variety, just step in and call for me. I'm an errand boy for rhythm. Send me. We'd like to play it back home in good old Indiana. Proceed, Lewis, proceed.
Thank you, Louis Gunn. Thank you. Well, men, as the Japanese admiral said to his crew when the Allies struck his convoy, that's 30 for tonight, boys. The Navajoon polished off this blue side swing station. Got to tuck the baton under our sleeves and turn off the steam, jimalimalim. Till next week at the same time, have you word to add, Louis? Ernest, thanks to all the guys who wrote the Jubilee. Saying they like the last batch of stuff we've been their way. And any time they want us back, all they got to do is holler, Hey, Jordan, get off your rusty dusty and go over and scratch the back of our solid jack. So long for now. <laughs> Thanks, Louis. Meantime, this is all that meeting, no points, Ernie Whitman, Governor Webster for Ida James, the King Cold Trio, and Louis Jordan and his mellow aggregation. Glad you know and dig you later. So long and good luck. Ah! Ah! Limpton stretched by Jubilee under the solid cast veracity of the Special Service Division of the War Department of the United States of America.
now we're both aware we still care. It was plain to see you were reaching out for me. Are we? Um, a group called uh, 
Zingara, Z-I-N-G-A-R, and that was Love's Calling, but the lead vocalist on there was James Ingram. And when Quincy Jones heard this song and heard him, he signed him to a contract. And that's how James Ingram really got his start in the business, was through this song, Love's Calling, when he was with Zingara. And before that, I did uh, Vesta Williams and Somebody For Me. And I just want to thank everyone who's listening this evening, especially those of you listening on KUHS Denver Radio and Television. And I just want to thank my guest this evening, Ryan uh, Ellett, for writing a great book, Encyclopedia of Black Radio in the United States, 1921-1955. It's on McFarland Press. If you're a big old-time radio fan like myself and love your black history like like myself, pick this book up. But anyway, we're going to get out of here, and I I hope you enjoyed the old-time radio shows I played today, even the Sam and Henry thing with the precursor of Amos and Andy, and after that playing uh, Destination Freedom with DeMarc Vasey and then Jubilee with the various performers on there. You know, but once again, this is Greg Rashid. If you want to join the... uh, Join the family, I call it here, and follow the show and support it. You can go on my Facebook site, Greg, G-R-E-G, last name Rashid, R-A-S-H-E-E-D. You can go on my Twitter site, hashtag Unifix, U-N-I-F as in Frank, I-C-S as in Sam, hashtag Unifix. You can go to blogtalkradio.com, look for the Root and Root Show. Go to iTunes, social media, you'll find this show, a little bit of everywhere, but if you want, you got suggestions for topics, just give me a call because a lot of the shows I do are based on listener suggestions. So, again, this is Greg Rashid. Hug someone out there. Take care and go in love and go in peace, and we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. <laughs> Thank you.